Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I have been interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You better catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 33, with the title, None of us are included fully in the world until all of us are. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Stacey Hart. Stacey describes herself as someone who is a full-time parent, sometime actor, and volunteers for the Women's Equality Party. When I asked Stacey to describe her superpower, she said that she could talk to anyone. Hello, Stacey. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joe. It's really, really good to be here. But if you don't mind, I will not be grabbing anything decaf today. <laughs> <laughs> Going for the full strength, are you? I will be, yes. <laughs> Dark and strong. I know. Sometimes I feel like that, especially after a long, hard day. Yeah, I'm not satisfied until the bag's yeah. been in for at least half an hour. <laughs> I'm not really a tea drinker. I'm definitely a definitely a bean shaker, if you like. Yeah, yeah, I like my beans. Uh, yeah, I've, I think I've, I I was put off by tea uh, by my grandmother. She used it's back in you know this is back in the late sixties, early seventies. She used to make tea with with loose leaf, and. Uh, I was always get to the bottom of the cup and I'd end up with a mouthful of tea leaves because she didn't strain it very well. So I think that, that psychologically damaged me with tea. And I can't think about tea now without a mouthful of tea leaves. And it's, uh, it's just been so ingrained in me because it was every Sunday we went to grandma's house and we ended up having to drink this mouthful of leaves all the time. It was like a ritual. Um, so now I'm definitely a bean coffee person and, uh, yeah. And I, I think I drink it decaf more than caf at the moment, just uh, purely because I, I think I drink too much of it, and it was probably causing me to have palpitations from time to time. <laughs> anyway, we digress. We digress. We're going right off into bean and leaf territory here. Uh, so, so tell me, Stacey, when you said um, in, in the show notes, you, were, you, 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 you used this phrase, none of us are included fully in the world until all of us are, and I love that. So tell me about that and your view. Well, in a lot of the work I do and a lot of the groups that I'm involved with, we say this phrase and, you know, people will have heard this, none of us are free until all of us are free. And to me, what that means is that, you know, when people who may be part of a, a group that, um, that that I am not a part of, you know, um, for example, let's say, um uh, black people, you know, I'm a white person, when those people are targeted for violence on the basis of who they are or are discriminated against because of who they are, that means that the same thing could happen to any one of us on the basis of any of our own characteristics. So I fight for people that don't necessarily look like me or have the same background as me because until all of us are free from the kind of discrimination that stems from not looking like or being like 
someone else or coming from the same place as someone else or living a different lifestyle, it means that none of us are really free. None of us are, are safe um, from, from that kind of discrimination. So I think for me, the same applies to inclusion. If the world that I'm in doesn't include everyone, doesn't include you know, people that look like me and don't look like me, people that live like me and don't live like me, people from all kinds of, 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 of backgrounds and walks of life and experiences, then it isn't the world. It isn't the world. It's, it's uh, a half a world or, or a bit of a world. And I don't, I don't want to be a part of a half a world. I want to be a part of a, a fully rounded world that's representative of everyone and welcoming to all people because that's a world that's safe and happy and interesting and fair otherwise it's just a bit crap really and that's so I feel like the, the, the same thing applies yeah I completely agree I mean when I got into this uh, DNI space about three or four years ago I suddenly realized that it wasn't about me you know I, 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 I launched into it with the primary objective of, of promoting trans awareness. I realized that I was just one person or one characteristic in a world where there are many people who are marginalized, discriminated against, or denied opportunity for who they are. And I realized I didn't want to be so self-centered to just talk about myself. And I, and I very similar to the, what you said, none of us included fully in the world until all of us are. I always say that I want the world to be inclusive for everyone because I am everyone. I am just the person as well. If, I, if, if everyone wins, I win. I think that's a great mantra. And I, and I, I often talk about this, about inclusion being holistic. We have to, who, who isn't included? Who, who chooses who's good enough, who's not good enough to be included? And I think that's, it's very powerful that you say that. And I think you're completely right because you know, there's another saying that uh, you can judge an organization or society by the way it treats the weakest or the, or the less uh, or the most marginalized people because that sets the tone and if if i let this propagate will it be me next yeah, kind of absolutely. approach and yeah that's how uh, genocides have been formed you know some some of the, the wars of the world have been where it's incremental and it builds up and then suddenly the uh they're coming for everybody and that that's kind of what we want to stop isn't it but yeah i i completely agree and i think that's a it's a really really powerful message you, you said there yeah it, it it is and that's uh, that's why i don't understand uh a lot of the time where um because if i do have a flaw which i do i'm you know like everyone have many um it's it's intolerance of the intolerant and and i sometimes find that i can't understand that that opposing point of view and i think one of the reasons i can't understand it is because quite apart from the fact that it's just the right thing to do to include everybody it's just the right thing to do put that aside and look at it from a purely self-interest point of view i mean isn't it just more interesting and easier and more successful businesses certainly are more successful when they're more inclusive um you know isn't isn't the art better and and the, the conversations aren't they better when people don't always look and sound like you i mean isn't it just a bit bloody boring otherwise <laughs> do you know what mm. i mean and i like you i kind of came into it um to, to my work initially um from a sort of a self-interest, like to promote the rights of women. You know, I, I, I lead the Basingstoke branch of the Women's Equality Party. I set that branch up and, and, um, and formed it. And, and we're working now locally 
doing exactly what it says on the tin, working for, for the rights of women. But I'm also, having come into the fight for equality, um, very much thinking that it's it's not just about me and it, it's about uh, equality for everybody. And I'm included in um, within the Women's Equality Party. I'm part of the LGBTQI caucus. I am co-lead of the Race Equality Caucus Allies, which is the group of white people within the party who want to be allies to the Race Equality Caucus um, and, and, and set ourselves up to, uh, to sort of learn and unpick our own biases and, and educate people that want to learn and do anti-racist work. So it, it truly is about everyone, not just about women, you know. Interesting. I, I'm just picking up on, you know, the being intolerant of intolerance. And I, I, I use that saying at all as well. And it's, uh, you have to know what you stand for and you have to say what, what is, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable and then be intolerant of that. But where do you stand on when we talk, people talk about free speech and, and no platforming and, and turning people off? When is your tolerance or intolerance different to their intolerance? And, you know, we've, we've got, had a recent incident where uh, a well-known presenter on a, on a morning show on ITV stormed off set uh, for, for expressing his views. And some of us may say those views are intolerant of, of, of a certain group. Other, other people applaud those free speech, say what he thinks type views. So where, where, does, where do you think society should stand on this? Because we can't silence people, but we can't allow everything to, to be said, can we? No, we can't uh, do either one of those things. Um, and it is, yeah, it is very much um, an ongoing uh, conversation, isn't it? Um, I think that uh, there are, in law, fairly well laid out boundaries between the protection of freedom of speech and where that veers into hate speech. Now, those laws aren't perfect. Um, you know, misogyny, for example, is not yet classed as a hate crime and, um, you know, catcalling and bothering women on the streets because of their, you know, because they are women is, is, is not yet common. That needs to be, um, that needs to be fixed. But we generally speaking have a fairly kind of well-known framework that says you can be unkind and not break the law, but you can't speak to someone in a hateful way because of a protected characteristic. And I think that the kind of culture war that is is going on at the moment is um, it, it's being sort of propagated on on a lot of sides and a lot of fronts. Um, but I don't think it's actually um, as much of a problem as a lot of the uh, shall we say elite interests. Think it is. I hear a lot about cancel culture, and I don't believe that cancel culture really exists all that much. The presenter that you mentioned, for example, walked off of his own show. Nobody cancelled him. Nobody marched him out of the studio. He was being criticised. He didn't like it, and he marched off. And that was his choice. Um, I hear people talking about. And I'm not going to name names because I don't like giving them uh, oxygen, frankly. But there are people that we've all seen out in the media and they're usually uh, pale, male and stale. And they're complaining loudly and vociferously 
in broadsheet papers about how they are being cancelled <laughs> and it, it, not apparently failing to see the irony that they're being given huge platforms all the time to say these things, to talk about how they're being cancelled and to talk about how their rights are being trampled on. Meanwhile, you know, the voices that we hear, the representation in our politics, the representation in our businesses, um, you know, the arts that we see on the television, these things are glacially slowly getting better, but they are overwhelmingly the same voices that we've always heard, the same class of people that we've always, you know, been been ruled by. They are overwhelmingly very, 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 you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, um, if you don't mind me quoting who. And uh, so I fail to see, you know, there are instances occasionally where you might get, I don't know, like a student union, for example, saying, actually, we're going to disinvite you from this speaking engagement because you've said something that we're not happy with. Well, for starters, if we're giving, you know, young people the freedom to speak and to hear who they want to hear from, you know, nobody's entitled to a platform for their views. They're allowed to say those things, but they're not entitled to a stage. Um, And are we saying that young people don't have the right to say, actually, I don't want to listen to you because you were unkind about my friend over there and and the people that look like my friend over there. So I think, I think I want to listen to someone else. That, That is a right as well. You know, Nobody has a right to a platform. A right to freedom of speech is not freedom to to be heard. Um, And we're very, very, very overzealously worrying about uh, about these things. Um, And I believe, uh, and this is going to be perhaps a little divisive, and that's why I'm hedging around it perhaps, I believe that the people that are worrying about it the most are the people who are concerned that their kind of politics is becoming unattractive to the younger generation. And they are realizing that young people are waking up, looking around and going, you have ruled everything for a long time and you are really quite unpleasant and you are not inclusive. And this society is not equal. This economy is not working for everybody. And I don't think we want to hear from you right now. And the people that are shouting loudest about cancel culture are generally the people who are worried that they are going to be shut out of the future of politics because of that awakening. And they are almost always also the people that have historically had the biggest platforms and they're worried about losing them. So uh, it's people with privilege you're talking about. So whoever holds the privilege in society are are pushing back. They're feeling under threat. They're feeling under attack. Yeah, the woke culture is is trying to tear down the patriarchy, tear down colonialism, tear, tear down white supremacy or whatever it may be, and, and that's making people uncomfortable. Is that, is that what you think? I do believe it is. Yeah, that is what I think. And, um, I mean, much like a lot of um, new movements uh, and new vocabulary, you know, the word woke started out as a positive thing. It started in, uh, you know, the black community as a way of describing people who had their eyes open to the world around them and, and weren't blinded to their own privilege. And if you were, you know, awake and aware of that privilege, then you were woke. And 
uh, like many words before it that started out as being a, a positive descriptor, it got very, very quickly co-opted by those with privilege uh, and turned into a sarcastic kind of, uh, you know, demeaning thing to say about someone um, who was uh, trying to be overly groovy about something. And I mean, what, what is the opposite of woke? It is asleep. I don't want to be asleep to my privilege. And you call me what you like because of that. I don't give a <laughs> a, fl- a flying whatever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, don't give a, I don't give a rat's poop. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree, and I, I think I, I probably heard the word woke a few times over the last three or four years. And I, I googled it. I went on Wikipedia and did some research on on, on the origins of woke, and I thought. Yeah, I want to be woke. Yeah. I want to be awake. I want to, to to check my privilege. I want to understand who I am. How can I understand anybody else unless I know who I am? And I think it's 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 good to check your privilege. And when someone calls you out for it, the reaction that most people have is, "Oh no, not me." No, I'm I'm. Yeah, and there's always this defensiveness, and or people are worried about being called out for privilege. And I think sometimes you need to bathe in it and say. Yeah. Okay. I didn't see that. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. Now, t- tell me how how that impacted you, or, or let me let me process that. And I think many of us, when we're challenged on our privilege, even if it's just the fact we speak English, the fact that we we can afford our weekly shopping bill, whatever it may be, um, we 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 say, well, but I've had a tough life as well. Is, is that me too, or that what aboutism that goes on, isn't it? The what aboutery, and we try and defend our privilege by saying, well, I've had to work for a living. I've I've worked all these hours, and people often forget that they've had opportunity from birth. And I, I describe privilege as some a bit like a pension pot. If you're contributing into your pension pot from a very early age, it gets enormous by the time you retire. And for those who are born into privilege, that that privileged pot starts accruing for within seconds of birth or in fact it's probably preloaded before you're born whereas people who acquire education throughout their life they've still got that hole in the bottom of their bucket which is dribbling out their, their, their personal capital and they can never fill it up quick enough whereas other people have got this watertight container of privilege that just keeps growing and growing and growing and i think people often forget that they, they say they're self-made or they've, they've generated themselves, but they've generated it on the, on the standing of that privilege, whereas other people who have not had that, that, that fortune to be born into that world are always starting 10 paces behind. They're, they're always playing catch-up. And when they're, they're, they're saying that they've had to make it themselves, that they've had to do overcome all of those barriers as well. And I think we often forget that. And it's easier to, it's easier to turn a million pounds into two million pounds than turn – hundred pounds into 200 pounds yeah and that's 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 reality of the world isn't it it is absolutely and um i think it is an awkward thing to realize um particularly when you come to the realization uh perhaps a bit later in life you know and that that's fine um it, it's okay to be at any stage of your kind of personal journey of trying to unpack your own privilege you know in um in the race equality caucus allies group for the women's equality party we talk a lot about how um it is uncomfortable um realizing the things that you've benefited from over the years and these aren't things that were handed to you no one's saying that you know you didn't work hard for them but it's a bit like being um you know walking down a corridor um 
where you go through lots of sets of double doors that are auto open ones and they you reach it at a stride and and it just sort of opens in front of you you know you're still walking down the corridor you're still putting the effort in you know your legs are still moving your muscles are still you know working and all that stuff but if you look behind you there are you know there are black people and brown people and LGBTQI people and disabled people and older people and working class people who, who for whom those doors are not opening and they're having to sort of muscle their way through them. I mean, that's probably, uh, you know, an analogy that I've picked up somewhere on the internet. I, don't really I, I love it. As you, were, as you were saying it, I was thinking about traffic lights and some days you go for a drive yeah. and every traffic light is just green and what you just go home and you think, wow, that was so easy. Absolutely. But there are other days where every traffic light is red. You're having yeah. to change down gear. You have to stop. You're going, oh, here we go again. Yeah. You're pulling away in traffic and you just know you're going to get caught by the next one, then the next one. Yeah, so and just, I'm sure everyone can relate to the fact that just in, just picture those two journeys and how frustrating the red lights are Absolutely. and how how free thinking the green ones are and that's a great analogy i love your the doors just open in front of you without you have to push or yeah. stop or unlock and it is it is awkward when you get to a point and you might be in your you know you might be a, a, a bright uni student or you might be in your 30s or 40s or, or, or later in life and you come to that realization and you you look behind you and you see those barriers and and it is awkward we talk about that a lot in the race equality caucus it is it's painful um you do sometimes the automatic reaction is is of a lot of people uh when when you know they're, they're, they're asked to unpack their privileges is uh defensiveness um and you, you can you can feel awfully bad about that and what we always try and underline in the group is that um provided that once you have had this realization and you are aware of this wherever you are when that comes provided that you commit to continuing that learning and to not ignoring it and to actually working to um, uh, unpick those structures that make life so much harder for other people than it was for you, then, you know, give yourself a little bit of a pass because everyone's experience is different and no one is accusing you of anything unless you are refusing once you realise you have it to unpack that privilege and to and to share the wealth a little bit. If you're refu- and a lot of people do that too, by all, you know, but don't get me wrong, there are a lot of the powers that be that do that too. And those people we can have a go at. But, you know, for those of us that are genuinely trying, for those people that are willing to do the work, generally speaking, no one's accusing you of anything and you just you don't need to be quite so defensive about it. But many people who come from minority backgrounds or not, you wouldn't consider having a great deal of privilege, don't even know that these rooms or these opportunities or this this access exists. This is not that being denied access to an opportunity. They don't even know the forum exists in which they can find that opportunity. Because often, I mean, there was a program documentary on BBC the other night about uh, PPE contracts. I'm, and I have no judgment about whether it's right or wrong or whether the people who awarded them or not awarded them. But what it became clear was 
there's a whole load of people ideally placed in their view to be able to supply, but they didn't even know how they got on the list. Uh, whereas other people who were on the list because they knew someone. And that's often the difference when we talk about privilege, we talk about networking, uh, uh, yeah, old networks, you're a member of a club, you hear about things, it's people you go to school with, you, you keep in touch with all your life. They're in positions of power, they hand things out to people they know. Whereas if you come from a, an environment where you don't have that access, you never know about those opportunities. You, you, you've got no clue they even exist, let alone how to ask for them. And that's where that keeps the divide active all the time, doesn't it? It does. Um, and I agree. And I think that that um, sort of feeds back into what we were saying about that defense. I think a lot of people, um, if you say, well, that's nice that you've achieved this thing, but, you know, you didn't have any barriers because of, you know, the fact that you're able-bodied or the color of your skin or whatever it might be, and you were able to, to achieve that thing through hard work, but without the additional barriers of this other person, that defensiveness um, is often born of the fact that they have a belief in a meritocracy. And that's that's another side of it. It's not always purely selfishness. It's not always purely, you know, you're trying to take away this thing and I feel I've earned it. It's that reaction, I do believe, for a lot of people is is based in the fact that it is really quite painful to understand and appreciate that you don't live in the country, in the world that you thought you did. If you have a belief um, in a meritocracy and then someone is telling you, look, that really isn't the the society that we live in. I'm sorry. That's not only kind of feels maybe undermining to you and the work that you've done, but it's also like psychically quite painful, I think, to, to feel that betrayal by, you know, the country that, that you thought you lived in, the world that you thought you lived in, the world that the, the newspapers always told you that you lived in. And you know, those rousing cries of, of land and hope and, of hope and glory always told you that you lived in. And a lot of people, I think, cling to that idea that the meritocracy exists and that they were just the ones that did the best in it because it's not just about them and their work. It's also really painful to understand that you don't live in the place that you thought you did because that meritocracy just does not exist, really. You know, it's who you know a lot of the time. We see it every day. You know, look at the people that, and I, I know this isn't about politics, but look at the people who are making the decisions, the people who are making the laws, the people who are writing the newspaper stories, and tell me that you truly, truly believe that those people, that the best people in the country to do all of those things all of the time, forever and ever, our men are all middle-aged, wealthy white men. I refuse to believe that that is the case. You're shattering everyone's myth now <laughs> you know, the merit, about the meritocracy. I mean, I thought I thought the best person always got the job. I mean, are you saying that this is bullshit? <laughs> there is the, the meritocracy is it's just a, a myth created by by the privilege. Say the best person gets the job. We look at we see it in recruitment. We see it in opportunities because the best person must get the job. If we don't believe that, that undermines everything, doesn't it? Well, it does. It, it, it undermines the foundations of, of the society that we thought we lived in. And um, I think what that does is, is as it undermines a lot of people's self-worth, because for a lot of people, their self-worth is tied up in a kind of um, 
a nationalism, a feeling that they stand for good British values in inverted commas, whatever that means, and and their their, their feelings of self worth are, are, are tied up in that in that sort of you know slightly jingoist, you know, we're the Brits, fair play kind of thing. Um, so it's undermining, and also it's not very pleasant to realise that actually you can work as hard as you like, and it might not mean that you get anywhere. It's that that, that that's depressing. You know, that does make you feel like collapsing into a ball of ennui with Netflix, doesn't it? It's 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 not nice. <laughs> but, the rea- no, but the reality is, it's not just about your capability; it's your name. If it's a traditionally British Anglo-Saxon name, we know that you have to have more chance of, of, of achieving something than a, than a, a non-British name. And we know that your gender, if you're male, we know you stand more chance of being promoted to senior management, especially if you're a tall man, you stand more chance. And we know all these biases exist and they become sort of self-fulfilling, don't they? We, we believe tall white men have more authority than short black men or whatever it may be. And even amongst other women, we find that women don't rate women as, as well as they rate a man in a leadership role. So society's conditioning on us all, isn't it? We, we can't just blame men or privileged people for this. It's kind of, we've also socialized ourselves to believe it in some respect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, during my kind of, uh, yeah, this is going to sound so awful when you put it like this, during my feminist journey, um, in inverted commas, you know, I've unpacked like, a lot of crap that I that was socialized into me as a kid, as a young woman. You know, I grew up. Um, you know, my I'm 41 now. I was born in 79, so my kind of my formative years, what I think were my formative years, were sort of the bits where you start going out with other people for the first time, and you're not sort of just necessarily being at home. So you're talking about you know later school going into kind of college which early 90s sort of thing yeah well for me like sixth form was where that that kind of really happened where I started really sort of forming as a person I suppose and um uh and that was like 95 through 97 and so we're talking ladette culture and um spice girls girl powers and heat magazine there's a very you know and uh, you know don't get me wrong I still get a little bit nostalgic for the spice girls and some of the some of the early work but um but it's isn't it a very, very narrow view of what girls are and what girl power is? It's girl power that is distilled very much through a uh, traditionally uh, male approved, attractive, you know, narrow, fit, sporty, attractive, as you say. Yeah, yeah. And um, so all of those things. And we, we are socialized you know so successfully and conditioned so successfully as young people by by the media and by the people around us and you know in my 40s um i am unpacking that still and there are some great great books um delusions of gender by cordelia fine is one of the ones that i'm working through at the moment that talks a lot about um you know the studies uh that are out there that sort of prove that you know we aren't born thinking that you know girls like pink and boys like blue and girls like, you know, nurses, uniforms and boys want to be truck drivers, you know, that all of that stuff. Um, even by parents who do believe that they are um, parenting equally and in a, a gender neutral way is, um, is just drip fed in there by absolutely everything around us. And unpicking it is hard. It is hard. 
And I find that now as a parent as well with my two boys. Yeah, I often talk about the fact that we should have pre-parenting classes to just help future parents think about how we socialize our children and how they can start bringing those thoughts into play before even the child is is conceived so they can start thinking about how they want to bring their young boy their young girl whoever they they develop to be into the world in, in a very equitable and and opportunistic way rather than setting that expectation almost from the pink bedroom or the the teddy bear they're given and that's the beginning of it for most people and, and because there's this view in society that we we have to treat our little girl in a certain way or a little boy has to be a bit rough and tough no matter no matter how woke you are as a parent it's really hard to escape that programming isn't it it is incredibly hard um and there was a great um story in in the book i was just reading where um they were talking about um, a, a set of parents that said, you know, we do everything gender neutrally. We buy our little girl, you know, we bought her just as many trucks and dinosaurs as we did dollies, but she just went for the dollies. She picks them up. She puts them to bed. She looks after them. She changes their nappies. And, but, but we've given her equal toys. So it must be that she just has a predisposition for putting little dollies to bed as something that she is is kind of conditioned like brain wired in there. And then they asked, well, who puts your little girl to bed? And the mum said, well, I do. <laughs> and there you have it. You know, it's kids, so that the role model. Yeah. Yeah, kids learn far more from what we show them than what we tell them. And I know that because everything I tell my boys goes in one ear and out the bloody other, right? So they learn far, far more about about what they uh, should be doing and um, and should be uh, how they should be behaving um, by, by watching us than they do, do by listening to us. And I think that's why, um, you know, for the Women's Equality Party, we have seven core objectives and one of them is equal parenting and caregiving um, because it's important for fathers to have as much time at home with their kids as it is for mothers. Um, you know, of course, speaking in a, a sort of if, if, if assuming the relationship is a traditionally uh, heterosexual sort of nuclear family one, uh, which not all families are, and that's great. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's really important for both parents Um to have as much time um, with the kid um, because that is not only formative for the child, but it allows, you know, all the dads that have been denied that bonding over the years. And then that, you know, that goes on to affect the entire family dynamic all throughout everyone's lives. It goes on to affect, you know, the fact that then that feeds into the pay gap, which, you know, equal pay is another one of our core objectives. Um, it goes on to uh, mean that as traditionally the higher earner the the burden of earning is then on on the dad and that that can be an incredibly um powerful and and and, and horrific thing to have to carry um it, it all of these things all of these inequities are, are tied up together like a knotted ball of rubber bands is how i describe it there's no one issue that doesn't affect another issue equal pay has to do with equal parenting which has to do with equal media treatment because when you look at the way that we we talk about people in our culture when they don't fulfill 
the roles that we, you know, the way that we talk about, oh, daddy's babysitting, is he? No, he's looking after his kid, actually. Parenting. Yeah. Parenting yeah. Is, is what it's called. Exactly. All of these things are tied up together like a big old knotty ball of rubber bands. And that's what it's, you know, kind of our work and, and my work on our Basingstoke branch and, and with our Basingstoke team. I have a great team of people here um, that I work with. Um, is trying to unpick some of that bit by bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all, I mean, a fish doesn't see the water it swims in until it's taken out. And it's really difficult for people to see the privilege they, they breathe and live every day until they lose the privilege. And, and I know people who have had a life-changing injury or, or they've had cancer or some, something significant has happened in their life. And that's often enough to nudge them and jolt them out there off, the, off their the traditional trajectory to make them realize what it is to lose that privilege, that able body privilege or that uh, financial stability, because it goes far beyond just the protective characteristics. And there's the, the non-protective characteristics are kind of the starting point that there's a whole load of other inequities around you know, your ability to provide for your family or even the, the language you speak or the default. They're, all of these things impact. I think people don't really see that. In themselves, and when, when, when people are having conversations around the inequities, around gender, around race, or whatever it may be, or around ability and, or disability, then people don't have any reference point. They just, as we said earlier, they just they don't, they don't see that privilege, and that that's a real. That's it takes someone to have that life changing moment, either with themselves or someone in their family, to really really understand it. And I think for many men, it can happen when they have a have a daughter or they, their wife or partner experiences some sort of um, discrimination or violence or whatever it may be, then they become woken up to that, that scenario. And I think, I mean, I've, I've, where are we? We're, we're middle of March, and the tragedy of the, the death of Sarah Everard in the last fortnight and the fact it was a police officer has woken up many women to start telling their stories and many men are pushing back. Well, it's not me. Yeah. The not all men is coming back in the same way. We had the uh, white lives matter, all lives matter to the response to the black lives matter. And, but yeah, I mean, we could say it's not all men, but actually it is all women, isn't it? And that's, that's part of the problem here that every woman I know has a story. And I only transitioned four and a half years ago and I've got my stories around being female and I, and I've, I've woken up to a world that I didn't know existed. And yeah, you know, I'm not saying I was a significant problem, but I, I wasn't perfect. I, I don't think any man is perfect. We, we all contribute to that, that social construct agenda, but we don't know we're doing it because it just is. And I think it's, I mean, you, you must've heard lots of stories uh, from or you've probably got your own stories, but you've heard lots of stories from other people about just the everyday reality about being a woman in the world, in the UK right now. Yeah. Yeah, I have um, both heard a million and one of them um, and, and, of course, have my own as well. And I think I do, I do get a little – we talked about intolerance of the intolerant. I do get a little bit impatient – with the not all men crowd, because it's once again sort of dragging that focus background to themselves. And I have to keep 
the fact that we have to keep saying no one is saying it is you is really, frankly, depressing. The fact that someone is hearing about a horrendous, horrific tragedy um, in which someone lost their life that didn't, and no, do you know what? Her life was taken. And that's another thing as well. We talk a lot about these things in um, in a very passive language. And we do that, um, I think, because it's easier to turn a blind eye to violence uh, against women and girls when we use it, when we use language like that, violence against women and girls, life was lost. It's very passive framing. It's uh, it talks about it like it's a tidal wave or an earthquake, something that was horrible and tragic but couldn't be helped, whereas actually we should be um, talking in terms of male violence because, you know, it is overwhelmingly, I think it's like 97% of, of uh, lives taken across the world are taken by men. And, and talking about, uh, you know, lives taken rather than lives lost. Um, and as you heard, I just did it just now. So all of that stuff is there for the unpicking and it is um it is frustrating when you hear about something uh a horrible case like sarah everard and a person's first reaction to being asked would you please help us so that this doesn't happen more is well i don't do it are you saying i do it that is their first reaction. And I will admit, I sometimes have trouble keeping my temper with people like that because again and again and again, no, we're not saying you do it. We are saying you don't do enough to prevent it because none of us do. You know, I myself have um, been in positions where I wish I had stood up for other women. And yet I, as a woman, would would have been terrified to do it. But that doesn't mean that I couldn't have done more. And I have, you know, been in positions where um, I, I wish I'd stood up for, for other people, you know, um, not necessarily women, just other, other people in, in different scenarios. And, and I didn't. But this is such a big thing. And it's such a hugely... Um, split issue like it is predominantly women that are being attacked that are are being violated and it is predominantly men that are doing it and we need all men to make that not okay because it's not about the high profile cases it's not just about them it's about a a scale of violence that ends with those cases that we that we're hearing about, but that begins with catcalling in the streets or a bit of a grope in the bar, way love honka honka, whatever despicable thing it is that people think that they could do, that they that, that that's allowed. Uh, I, I've had that honka honka yeah. in a bar, yeah, um, and the, the the person who I looked at them and they just shrugged their shoulders and go, what? Yeah, okay, really. And it's part of, um, you know, the the unpicking that I've had to do in myself is is that now I'm obviously at a stage where I would, you know, I I would raise the roof, (laughs) you know, if that were to happen tomorrow. But when it did happen and it has happened in the past, 
you know, as I talked a bit about, you know, the socialization of, of, of us as, as, as younger people and in, in my generation in the 90s when we were out drinking, you know, it was like, wait, because you had to be one of the lads. That was what you were taught was valuable. That was how you were of value. If you were in on the joke, if you got with the program, if you, you know, kind of went, yeah, come on, lads, and, and, and did that because that was how you were liked. That was how mm. you were then one. Yeah, it's the lad culture. It's, one of the yeah, it's how to. And yeah. un- unpacking that, as I say, it takes it takes a lot, a lot of time. And it's really, really important. When we were talking, you know, we've obviously talked a bit about um, Sarah Everard and that horrible case. But we were talking a little bit earlier about um, how other people don't see their, uh, their privilege Um and that, you know, the flip side of that is um, that they literally don't see things like this when they happen to other people. Because when you look at, you know, it is an appalling tragedy that Sarah Everard's life was taken away from her. But it is also worth noting that this particular case, which has, you know, torn the lid off of this debate and that has been in every single paper on every single TV channel is the case of a young, attractive, blonde, white, professional, middle-class woman who absolutely did not, you know, deserve to, to, to have her life ripped away from her. But there are all of the time, you know, in, in, in the week following her disappearance, there were six women and a little girl that lost their lives. And at least three of them were women of colour. And you won't hear their names. You won't hear the same stories. You know, if you think about um, the story of uh, Nicole Smallman and Biba Henry, who were two um, black women that were murdered and their family, you know, is saying that they uh, their disappearance wasn't taken seriously. The search was organised by their own family. They were actually found um, by a member of their own family. And then horrendous thing happened. Police officers that were investigating their murder took selfies with their murdered bodies. Yeah. I heard that, yeah. And sent them to WhatsApp groups. WhatsApp groups that d- included members of the public who weren't also police officers. I mean, like it would have been okay anyway. Of course it wasn't. And those police officers are still in posts. That was a year ago. And we are not hearing these stories. We're not hearing them in the same way that we will hear about Sarah Everard or that we heard about, that we still hear about poor Madeleine McCann to this day. There are very specific stories being told and those with less privilege, you will not hear those stories. Yeah, as you say, it's if you're blonde, you're white, you're attractive, professional, or have a level of privilege, then yeah. the society sees you as more tragic. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, until you said until you said that, I, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, and that is really powerful. And I mean that that leads me on to talking about um, the Meghan Markle interview and and how she has been the target of hate, abuse from the media. I mean, let's leave the family side out of it. Let's not, let's not talk about the family squabble, whatever exists within the family, but there's clearly mental health issues going on here. 
and how people are denying that because she's not white, attractive, blonde. She is a, is a, is a woman of color, of mixed, of mixed heritage, and the press seem to think it's okay to target her because she, she is that person. And, on, and again, it's this free speech. It's the how often do we hear that the, the press aren't racist? Yet we can see the evidence of the way they compare how Kate was treated, how versus how Megan was treated, and the same story and how it's spun differently. And, and they say, well, it's not racism. It's just we're selling papers. Is the justification, isn't it? It is. Um, and, I mean, they're lying. It is racism. It, it's clearly blatantly racism. Let's uh, say that most importantly, first and foremost. Um, it's also uh, the way we treat women in the public eye. Um, I, I mean, whilst there is clearly um, a, a huge racist element to the treatment of Meghan Markle, it is worth noting that, you know, uh Kate Middleton didn't get an easy ride in the early days before she showed that she was willing to ignore it, be demure, and they had thrown everything they could at her and she was still willing to sort of sit down with her head and, and put up with it. And then they decided that, that she was acceptable, actually. And look at the way, you know, Diana was treated. Um, that's not to uh, take away from how blatant... Well, and, and Sarah as well. I mean, yeah. any, any royal that, as you say... Yeah. If you put, if you can poke and provoke somebody, then you keep poking, and provoking. Once the person submits, they're no longer, they're no longer news, are they? They're just ordinary again. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's not, as I say, to take away from the fact that the treatment of Meghan Markle is blatantly and entirely racist as well. Um, but it's uh, there's a word, uh, misogynoir which describes uh, the treatment specifically of black women at the intersection of being a woman and and being black. And that's very much what this is. Um, she's getting it, you know, from all those, all those angles. Um, and it's just appalling. I mean, who are we? <laughs> who are we that, that we read this? Um, I, I don't believe that this is a, a freedom of speech issue. You know, freedom of speech is... Uh, is not about bullying. Um, it's it's not about hounding. Um, it's not about treatment that is clearly, when you compare it side by side, and if you go onto the internet, I'm sure you've seen the same things I have, comparing stories about Kate to stories about Megan. It's not being so blatantly biased against people for very obvious reasons. And um, that is not the kind of thing that it is okay to platform that's not the kind of treatment of people that it is okay to hang under the freedom of press banner and that's that's a problem we have a huge problem in our media with that and we really need to reckon with it but we need to reckon with it on a personal level as well because if you're picking up heat magazine um and for the exposés on the celebrities um and if you're picking up the tabloid newspapers because they've got the headline there of you know with megan and you if you're rolling in that stuff, like, like a, a, a you know, like dogs, you know, yeah. it, if you're feeding off it, then you're part of the problem. It, then yeah. you are a huge part of the problem, and uh, that's a difficult thing to hear. I think for a lot of people, they've they've managed to successfully divorce their consumption from the means that is used to get that to their eyeballs. Mm. 
it's interesting you use the word demure and, and subservient and, and basically giving up. And that's how women are expected to behave when it comes to violence or rape. Women standing up and saying, it happened to me, the first reaction is disbelief or what did you do to incite it? It's always pushed back to the woman. It's never, it's never somebody else's fault. It's always the woman who is questioned first. And I, I was on, on a debate the other day talking about people's experiences of social media, and I was talking about LinkedIn and the number of unsolicited male interactions I get on LinkedIn that often are, well, they're early stage sexual in nature, you know, sort of, hi, darling, I love your eyes. That, that warm-up act, you know, the kind of the, the soft intro was only harmless. And one of the other people on the panelists on this was talking about how they were shamed for calling it out. Saying, well, what about what about this man's family? What about this ma- man's wife? What about this man's children? By by calling them out and shaming them verbally and publicly, what about what are you doing to their life? And well, the reaction was basically, well, why shouldn't we call this out? Why shouldn't we be vocal? Because unless we do, unless we stand up every time and say, this is what's happening to me, this is not acceptable, A, the person who's the perpetrator, the, the who's creating this problem, will never learn. But it has to become socially unacceptable for women to be treated in this way. Because it, whilst it's hidden, whilst we're, we're, we're socialized to, to say to us, don't make a fuss, don't call it out. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe your profile picture is too attractive. Maybe the clothes you're wearing in your profile picture are too attractive. Maybe it's the fact that you're a professional woman. It's your fault for being there. It's often often what's being said. And men are just being men. We don't mean anything by it. It's just the way men are. It's a bit of fun. And that's the excuse that's often given. And I, I find that really, really frustrating. Now I sit on this side of the fence, if you like. I'm living in a world where I never knew existed. Uh, yeah. Five years ago, I, no one ever wrote to me like that, but now they do. And it's not every second, every minute. And I know some women I've spoken to get it on a daily basis, and it, it becomes escalating in the intensity of it. And unless you block, delete, report, it just carries on. And it's, it's, so, it's so tiring. Yeah. And it undermines you. It does. It is. And it's exhausting. And, you know, you can block you can you know sort of digitally stick your fingers in your ears of course you can but that takes time to do maybe only a few seconds or maybe a little bit longer if you want to file a report to to facebook or linkedin or whoever that takes time out of your day and that time adds up and so the 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 time and physical energy penalty adds up over you know days and months and years and sucks that out of you and what it does to you psychically adds up you know you hear a lot of people going oh is wolf whistling against the law now or whatever and you know getting wolf whistled at once in the street probably you know on one occasion isn't going to do that many people that much harm but when you're being told essentially daily that your value is whether or not you get attention in the street from random guys that adds up that is you know Stone gets worn away eventually if you drip water on it over a long enough period. And that is what this is. And it's the it's that cumulative nature of being told that your place is to be demeaned, belittled and judged. And 
you know, maybe one of your, maybe you're one of the lucky ones that, you know, if you're judged attractively enough and, you know, you get the right kind of attention in inverted commas. Mm. And, you know, that isn't, it's not okay. It's not okay. And it, uh, it has huge in, income, um, you know, issues. Um, it has huge, um, impacts on pay throughout your life. It has huge impacts on, you know, your working time, um, and, and just your mental and physical health, um, is, is, it's really, really damaging. And, uh, and that's why, yeah, I sort of, I'm, I'm fighting the fights that we are here in Basingstoke mm. and, uh, and why we have our, our wonderful candidate Priya standing for local elections in May. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I can't believe the hour's almost up and we've been, bloody hour. We've, been, we've been chatting away now. <laughs> Time's flown. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who've, who've been listening to this who maybe want to get in touch with you, uh, find out more about the work you're doing. So what's the best way of making contact if they want to find out more or, or have a chat with you? Um, well, the best thing to do is to get in touch via – if you want to get in touch about the Women's Equality Party, you can look at womensequality.org.uk forward slash Basingstoke. Um, you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We're at WEP Basingstoke. And yeah, find out more about what we're doing, not just about gender inequality, but about racial inequality and representation. We're doing work on the environment. We're doing work on school sports equality. We're doing work on the economy, um, all kinds of things um, to, to bring everyone to the table. Um, I also have, um, we didn't talk at all about my acting, but I, I am an actor. And um, as you know, Joe, I co-created a theatre show called Jug Life, um, which is all about, it's based on verbatim monologues about people's experience with their own breasts. So we've taken um, uh, interviews from all sorts of people um, and made a, a really funny and uh, insightful I think and hilarious and heartbreaking show about um about experiences with tits basically and there's all sorts of stuff in there but what I'm doing at the moment um since we're talking diversity and inclusion um as you know when we first created the show we did so under a little bit of a time pressure because it was to be initially a one-off thing for a charity um but uh what, what I want to do now now we're sort of have the time to do so is expand the show um, and get more monologues, more stories, more diverse and interesting um, experience in there and make it more inclusive of, of basically more people. So if anyone would be interested in being interviewed about their boobs, for whatever reason, it can be um, a, a silly thing, a small thing. It can be a huge thing. It can be funny or sad or yucky. It can be any experience at all. We want to hear it all. You'll find us at Jug Life Show on uh, Twitter and Facebook and also um, juglifeshow at gmail.com. So get in touch. We want to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, I, I told the story about my relationship with my breasts. I mean, that's probably about three, three or four years ago when we first met. Yeah. And uh, I remember going to the that event that you did as a result of it. And it was a fantastic evening. It was uh, very relaxed in a cafe in the middle of Basingstoke. And it was a very social affair. And you had lots of different voice actors reading out people's stories. And I remember sitting in the audience 
actually with my wife and a couple of friends hearing my story read out. And I thought, wow, did I really say that? It was kind of really, really powerful hearing your own story read. Uh, but to listen to the stories of the other women and the other people that had contributed was also phenomenal just to hear the different relationship people have with breasts, their own breasts. And it's really insightful that we're not the same, are we? We have, we have our own view of our own bodies and, and what things mean to us, these, these floppy bits that hang in front of us, what we do with them and, and how we see them, doesn't it? It's a, it's a really interesting, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic night. So if you're, if you're taking that project and doing more with it, I, I think, yeah, get in touch. And, and it's not, it's not just about women. If you have, if you're someone who identifies as male with breasts, if, you, if you've got a story about your own boobs or your own nipples, whatever it may be. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> since I, uh, since that first show that, that you saw, Joe, we, um, in the sort of second round of interviews, um, I have had discussions with a couple of uh, non-binary people. Um, I have interviewed um, a cis man with gynecomastia. Um, I, you know, there's there's all sorts of people that have gotten involved. I've I've done a group interview with a group of uh, old school friends who are, um, you know, different now at different stages of their lives, and that was really really good fun. Um, I've spoken to um, uh, someone who has like uh, a monitor, um, a heart monitor, uh, you know, sort of surgically implanted inside of a breast. And all of these different things, um, they're so important to hear. And, you know, when we talked earlier about the fact that we are uh, more likely to hear certain people's stories than others, that's something that we really, really want to do properly with Jug Life. We really want to hear from uh, people with all walks of life. And there's a lot more information on the Facebook page. Um, so, yeah, do have uh, go and have a look at, at Jug Life Show. I'll make sure all of these links are in the show notes. So if you want to find out more, you can click on the links uh, or get in contact with you, as you said, uh, via Instagram. I'll put those links in there and, uh, yeah, drop your private message. So, wow, thank you. Um, we could have carried on for another hour or two, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm sure people who are still listening got this far. Uh, they would have also got a huge amount out of this. So thank you for, for getting this far, for listening in, tuning in. Uh, please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. Uh, please do share. Uh, I have a number of other I'm not, I was going to say more exciting. Could they be more exciting than the guests we've already had today or in previous times? Um, but I've got lots of guests lined up who are equally, if not uh, passionately exciting as well. So please tune in. Please subscribe. Um, if you'd like to be a guest, I mean, you are potentially an inspiring guest yourself. So if you, if you want to get in touch, uh, please do contact me at joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. And if you've got any feedback or suggestions on how we can improve future shows, then please do let me know. So finally, it's for, for, for me to say, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.